Bible with you. If you'd like to turn to the first uh, 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. If you're visiting, <clears throat> we are doing a series on the freedom that we enjoy in Jesus. We are talking about Christian freedom. We're talking about what that means. We're talking about the difference between moralistic religion, between um, uh, trying to follow a, a system of rules to please God, and what it means to b- believe by faith, and what the difference looks like. Living in a world where the um, evidence of moralistic religion and very legalistic religion is, is there for everyone to see. So we're living in a world right now where um, people hold to certain values, they hold to certain um, rules by which they try to live, and if you don't adhere to, adhere to their rules and they, they, they disagree with you, what happens is you can be killed if you don't agree with certain religious rules. And we live in a world right now where that is happening all over the world. Okay, And I'm not fighting with any other religion. What I am saying to you is that the gospel is a completely opposite to that. The gospel says all you need to do is to believe in Jesus by faith, and that pleases God. That's all you have to do. You don't have to wear certain clothes. You don't have to eat certain food. You don't have to do any of that stuff. What pleases God is that by faith you believe in Jesus, and that makes you right with Him. That's it. This is the joy of the gospel. This is the freedom that we have in the gospel. And so I spoke to you last week and just said, that means you can eat anything, you can dress any way you like, you, you have cultural freedom, you bring your culture with you, you don't have to conform culturally to one kind of culture in order to please God. And that's what Paul was fighting for in this portion in Galatians, where these guys were in the church and saying, actually, to be a Christian, you must become Jewish, you must be circumcised, you must observe certain ritual fasts, you must wash in a certain way. And Paul comes and says, no, the gospel is by faith, th- through grace, by faith in Christ, and that is sufficient. And Paul wins a battle for us in the, right here thousands of years ago. And we looked at last week that the, the gospel brings us cultural freedom. And secondly, the gospel brings us emotional freedom. And I'd just like to mention that briefly before we, we uh, read this portion again. It brings emotional freedom. If your life is up and down all the time, if you're emotionally up, and you're emotionally down all the time, I want to put it to you that you don't yet fully understand the freedom that you have in Jesus. <coughs> and I'm not condemning anyone. I'm just saying, this is, we have freedom in Christ, and that does affect our emotions. Why do I say that? Simply this. If you live subtly by rules, if you have rules of other, expectations of other people that really are rules as well, and you think all Christians must behave in a certain way, and if they don't, you get really upset because they're not following the rules. And so you might say things like, Christians are such hypocrites. They're all hypocrites. They don't follow, they don't behave like they say they're going to behave. You see, that means that you simply, you're still living by rules yourself. And you are putting your trust in following the rules. You are looking for the rules to save you. And Jesus saves us. Not the rules. And so sometimes we put our rules onto other people and we say they disappoint us and then we get angry with them, your husband or your wife, and you you get angry with them. You're not perfect and you're supposed to be a Christian. What's wrong with you? In other words, what you're saying is I've got a system of rules that I expect you to live by. And when you break those rules, I'm displeased with you. (laughs) And what does the gospel say? The gospel says we are free in Christ. 
And there's an inner freedom that comes. And we, we start to walk in that freedom, and then something of our behavior starts to change. But no one is perfect until we get to heaven, and we are all on a journey, and we are all learning to be more patient, more kind, more joyful. We are learning by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's a very different way of approaching life. The one is, brings joy and freedom, and you don't have to worry, and you mess up occasionally, and you know what? You don't, you don't beat yourself up, and you don't feel guilty. You say, Jesus, I'm so sorry that I displeased you. And if you said something that offended your wife, you say, my darling, I'm so sorry that I was stupid in what I said. And then with a smile on your face and joy in your heart, you get on and you live your life. Not up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down all the time. Yes, there's a constancy that comes just by the power of the Holy Spirit changing us on the insides. So I want to encourage you, and I've got three little things that I'd like to say to you again out of this portion this morning. You know, my heart is always to encourage. I really hope you get that. I feel like when I read the Bible, there's one person I would like to be like. I'm going to look at that person in the next couple of weeks. Barnabas. Barnabas, for me, is one of the unsung heroes of the New Testament. He was a great encourager. He was always looking out for people on the fringe. He was trying to draw them in. He was trying to encourage them in their walk with Jesus. And he discipled a man called Paul who became the greatest theologian and church planter we've ever known. I want to be someone like that. You know, I want to say to you parents, perhaps the greatest thing you will ever do, I say this to myself, perhaps the greatest testament of my life will be that I raise two boys that love Jesus and make a difference to the world in their generation. Perhaps that will be my greatest testimony. Perhaps I will never lead a mega church. Perhaps I will never see thousands saved. Maybe I'm trusting for that, that I'll see thousands saved. But perhaps my greatest joy will be to see my sons do something for God, and that's enough. You know, Barnabas was that kind of man. His greatest joy was to see Paul increase. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great thing. Anyway, I'm getting distracted now, right? But let's read this portion together. And I've just got three things to say this morning. We're going to talk about unity. One of the values of our church is unity. What does unity look like? What does unity look like between us and between churches? We're going to look at that this morning. Uh, Galatians 2, verse 10, verse 1 to 10. Um, <clears throat> after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, I said before them the gospel that I proclaim amongst the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, although he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager 
to do. So, I'd like to talk to you this morning about the gospel that brings unity and uh, what three marks of Christian unity. And uh, as I was preparing, I was just thinking this. It's very, it's very tempting. It's, it's very easy for us when we are living in an age which, where churches are so fractured, where there's so much division, there's so much denominational fighting between churches, there's bickering all the time, and uh, as a church leader, that grieves me. And we live in an age where that is true, where we see that all over the place. And because of that, it's very easy for us to miss the repeated emphasis that the New Testament brings over and over and places on Christian unity. The New Testament, when you read it, is always speaking about the body of Christ, calling the church together to work together. So the real question we have to ask then this morning is, what we have to think about for ourselves is, what does real unity look like? And I've already unfolded some of these things last week that I just want to remind you of. The first thing that we see in verse 4 is that Christian unity means accepting anyone and everyone who is in Christ, who believes in Jesus by faith, regardless of their culture or their ethnic background. That's the first marker of church unity. And so I want to say to you in a very real way, if you are a Christian here this morning, you have far more in common with a Christian in Cambodia or outer Mongolia, or Scotland, or Ireland, or Wales, or wherever, France, Italy, you have far more in common with that person than you do with a non-believer who drives the same car as you, who lives in the same street as you, and who drops your, their children at the same gate that you do on a Sunday, or during the week. That's true. Why is it that when you go, I just returned recently, as you know, with Clive and Ian, we went to Cambodia, I was also in Singapore. These are very different cultural expressions. Why is it when you are in a situation like that, you feel at home immediately with other Christians? Why? Because there is a unity in Christ. There is truth that you are brothers and sisters. And I used to drop my kids at the school gate and I felt alienated much of the time with very little contact or real relationship developing. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I'm an alien in this world. I am, as Paul says, we are sojourners through this world. We do not belong here. So when I say to you sometimes, do you feel like you don't belong Maybe you would nod your head and say, yes, sometimes I feel like I don't belong. Well, that's because you don't belong. My Father is in heaven. I love where I live. I'm trying to change my culture. I'm trying to change the people around me. I love where I live, but I don't belong here. I belong with my Father in heaven, and so do you. So sometimes there is a sense of alienation that we feel like God... It feels like I'm just passing through. I want to say to you, you are just passing through. Our, our final destination is with our Father in heaven. And anyone who believes in Him will enjoy that same destination together with all of us. So, Christian unity then doesn't take account of cultural distinctives. Christian, like I said to you last week, God is not an Englishman. God is not a Welshman. God is not a South African. God is not a Yorkshireman. God is not an Italian. God is not a Frenchman. God is God. 
He is above all of those things. And we take our culture with us. We celebrate our culture, our background, and who we are. But the Christian, Christian unity does not say that you have to all be culturally the same to have unity. Are you with me? That's why we have this beautiful picture of the church. Every tribe, every nation, every people group. Because that's what it's going to be like in heaven one day. All right? And so, it also says, and that's what uh, we looked at uh, last week, that Paul won this amazing battle with the apostles so that um, we don't, when, when we preach the gospel, we do not insist that uh, any cultural additions or, uh, to gospel belief, it's faith in Christ by grace through faith. This is the great irony, unfortunately, is that many churches teach that it's good to believe in Jesus, but then they add their own distinctives onto what it means to believe in Jesus. <laughs> so, some say, some churches teach you must believe in Jesus and you must be baptized to be saved. For example, others say that you must belong to their church to be saved. <laughs> uh, many types of Christians, Christian people, add their distinctives onto belief in Jesus. Some Christians say you must believe in predestination in order to be saved. Some Christians say all over the world, you cannot, you cannot uh, enjoy any alcohol. If you enjoy alcohol, you cannot be saved. Some say you must speak in tongues to be saved. These are the ways that you can really be sure that you are saved if you do these things or if these things are evidenced in your life. But So what I'm trying to say to you is that many Christians say, I believe that we are saved by faith alone, but they, how they live is not just by faith alone. <laughs> it's by faith and. And so, churches can add cultural rules. Churches can add legalism onto people and say, to, be, to be, prove that you are saved, you can only dress a certain way. And ladies, your hair can only be a certain length. And gentlemen, if you have long hair, that is terrible. Uh, have you ever experienced some of these rules in churches? These are not biblical. These are cultural things that people add on to the gospel. And I'm trying to say to you, you can never add on your cultural things to the gospel. When your cultural things become non-negotiable, you know what that is called? Legalism. We don't like to say that we are legalists. Hey. But when, we, when our cultural things, the way that we do church, when it becomes non-negotiable, it is legalism. And we are called to be free in Christ. And part of my mission <laughs> is to keep this church free from legalism, on the one hand, from living by rules, and on the other hand, to keep this church free from licentiousness, just doing your own thing. There's a radical call of grace on your life, which says that you respond to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit enables you by power from the inside, not to live by rules and not to be licentious, but to live a godly life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, I want that kind of church. I'm sure you do as well, yeah? The first mark of Christian unity is that it, it welcomes anybody from any culture, any background who believes by faith in Jesus. Second, verse 7, and I've only got three things. Verse 7 Christian unity recognizes that we all have different callings. What do we see? It says in verse 7, They saw I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, Paul says, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So Peter and Paul 
were preaching the same gospel, the same good news, but they recognized that they were called to different groups of people, and there were different ways to preach the same gospel to different people. So there are some that have a gift and ability to communicate to one group of people. My friend Mike Pulavachi from Soul Survivor has an amazing gift to communicate to younger people. He just does it. He's 50-something, and he's still doing it. He's been doing it for 30 years, and his church is full of young people. That's his gift. Another hero of mine, Tim Keller from New, from New York, is an older man in his 60s. His church is also full of young yuppies in New York. And he's not cool. Why? Because he has a gift to communicate to a generation of young business people in a way that makes sense to them. We have different callings. People have different callings. And the gospel must be communicated in different situations to different people with the gifts that are in the church. Are you with me? And so that's why I kind of, I don't get to beat up about different kinds of churches. Why? Because it's God reaching everybody. And so our church here is slightly different to City Church down the road. It's slightly different to the Vineyard. It's slightly different to St. Paul's. We preach the same gospel. There's a different expression of it, and there's a slightly different group of people. And that's okay, because that's what Christian unity looks like. We don't all have to be the same. Come on now. And so I want to encourage you as we go into this year that you and I think very carefully about how we need to adapt the gospel to reach this local community in which we are called to be. I'm not saying change the gospel. I'm saying adapt the gospel because there are two things that we have to learn to do. We have to learn to adapt the gospel. If we don't learn to adapt the gospel, we become irrelevant to the generation that we are in and the community that we are in. If we over-adopt the gospel, we lose the gospel itself and we can never do that either. And so, what ways might we see some of these things um, today? Well, there are some churches and there are some Christians that try to adapt the gospel by removing anything that seems to be offensive from the gospel. So like they remove a belief in miracles. No, that's offensive. That offends us, so let's not believe in miracles. They remove the, the, uh, the demand from the gospel that says it's only in Christ that we can be saved. They try to remove that and say, no, 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 there's many, many ways to God and let's not be offensive to anybody else. They remove that. But if you remove that, you remove the gospel itself. There is no message left. And so the only thing that you are left with then is trying to live your life by rules in order to please God. And what a devastating way to live that is. That's failure to preserve the gospel, right, on the one hand. On the other hand, you can go too far in the other direction, and you can um, fail to adapt to the gospel. So, just let me pick on, on the church again. So, there's some, some of us in the church are so attached to our style of music, so attached to our organization, so attached to our liturgy, so attached to the way that we do things, and we are not ma- willing to make any changes to incorporate any styles or tastes outside of our little bubble. And then we become irrelevant. (laughs) And this is the great challenge of being a Christian in the 21st century, is to hold on to the truths of the gospel, what we really believe on, and, and, and to communicate those carefully, wisely, without losing the gospel to the, the generation that we are part of. It is a challenging thing. 
but it needs to be thought about and done. And so I want to encourage you as we go forward into this new year, how do we take the truths, the age-old truths? And one of the things I find very irritating about the media age in which we live is that everyone is trying to present some fancy new idea on multimedia and on social media. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry is writing a book, a webpage, a blog, and trying to present their revelation as like, this is really, really new. And this is really, really interesting because it's new. Actually, there's nothing new under the sun. That's what the Bible says. There's no new truth outside of Jesus and what He's revealed to us. Yes, we can learn, and yes, we learn new things. But to present like your thing is the, is the, the new thing that's going to bring revelation to everyone that's never been had before is just silly and irritating. <laughs> Let's not fall into that either, all right? So the irony is this. If you over-adapt, you lose the gospel. If you under-adapt, you lose the gospel. And so I said to you already, if our traditions, if the way that we do things here at Forest Town Church ever becomes non-negotiable in, the, in our style, essentially we are creating a system of legalism and we are saying, uh, you know, if you're a real Christian, this is how you do things. We never want to get there. And so I'm asking you together with us, uh, as, a, as a team, as we take this church forward into the new year, that I'm going to do this. I'm going to lump conservatism and legalism together and say that those really are things that refuse to adapt. They refuse to adapt to change. And on the other hand, I'm going to lump um, liberalism on the other side and say that if we're given to liberalism, we are failing to preserve the gospel. Are you with me? And so I'm saying we can't have those two things. Again, we have to have, we've said over and over, we want the Word and the Spirit. We want to live by what is true, absolutely. But at the same time, we want to hear the voice of the Spirit is saying, do this, walk here, don't do it like that anymore, change this. That's life. Amen? Okay, well, I'm enjoying this message anyway. <laughs> and lastly... And this, for me, was the most surprising thing out of this passage that I hadn't seen before. Gospel unity, Christian unity, means that we continue to remember the poor. It finishes off that portion. It says, um, only they said, go to, uh, Paul and Barnabas were, were um, allowed to go and blessed as they went to different people groups. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing... I was eager to do. And this is perhaps, like I said, the most surprising thing that I learned from this passage. Both Peter and Paul um, might have been called to different people groups, different mission fields, if you like, but they were both compelled to look after the poor. And uh, the apostles in Jerusalem, those that were in Jerusalem, James and, and John, were, were also insistent on that and said that they were eager that we should do that. And the question is, why is remembering the poor so fundamental to Christianity? Why is it such a key thing for Christians? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons. One is a general reason, and one is a specific reason. The, the specific reason is that in the context of this meeting that we're looking at here in Jerusalem, that Paul went to have with the apostles, there were Ju the Jewish churches in Judea were much poorer than the Gentile churches that Paul had been planting in Galatia and Ephesus and Corinth. They were much poorer. And you can read that if you just glance through the New Testament. Romans 15, verse 25. 
1 Corinthians 16, the first four verses, 2 Corinthians 8. It's clear. The churches, the Jewish churches in Judea were poorer than the Gentile churches that Paul was planting in other areas. And so the apostles in Jerusalem, they were concerned and they were trying to encourage the Gentile churches to see their Jewish brothers and to see the need of the Jewish brothers and to take care of each other. That's what the apostles were concerned with, the specific reason, that everyone would help to take care of the poor within the churches. The, The general reason is that care for the poor in the Bible is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, God's heart has always been for the poor. I want to give you a brief uh, summary of biblical teaching, and it's a really brief one. First, Jesus proves to John the Baptist that he is the Christ by pointing to the fact that he heals the sick and he preaches to the poor. Matthew 11, Matthew 6. At the inauguration of Jesus' ministry that we read in Luke 4, verse 18, what does Jesus say? He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus inaugurates His ministry. He says His ministry is proved to John the Baptist by the fact that He heals the sick and He preaches to the poor. Jesus also says in Luke 6 and Matthew 5 that anyone who has truly been touched by the grace of God the merciful kindness of God, will be passionate about looking after those that have need. Jesus makes the connection quite clear. Look for yourself. Luke 6.35, Matthew 5.43. And then, there is this thing that we need to look forward, and the Scripture points quite clearly to this, that God will judge whether or not we have had justifying faith. Remember when we did our study of... um, James, that James says, when Abraham offered up Isaac, when he was prepared to offer up his son, that was justifying faith. It was proving that what he said he believed, he believed. Yes? And at that that point, the angel stops him and says, no, there's a ram in the thicket, take that and kill that. And it says at that point, God looked on, on, on Abraham and loved him and saw that he loved him. Yes? There's a justifying faith. There's a sense, we're not saved by the works that we do, but there's a sense that the works that we do prove that we believe. It justifies our faith. So care for the poor, is, in a sense, is proving to ourselves and to others that we believe what we believe. Yes? And so Jesus says quite clearly in Matthew 25, there's this, um, there's this party that he's at. Jesus went to lots of parties by the way. He loved to hang out with people and have parties. So he's at this party and the Pharisees say, how come you hang out with all these people? You're eating and drinking. How can you be doing that? You're not following our rules? And Jesus says an amazing thing. He says this, Matthew 25, verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was, uh, oh no, 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 reading the wrong one. Yes, I don't know. Anyway, I'm reading the wrong scripture, but anyway, I want to read this one anyway. <laughs> um, Matthew 25. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In other words, proving again that we believe what we believe by doing these things. Um, what about, I've preached about Zacchaeus before. Remember Zacchaeus? When he was saved, what's the first thing he does? Gives half of all he has away to the poor, and he repays everyone that he's stolen from. (laughs) The evidence of salvation is a practical financial compassion for the poor. 
Um, Jesus, again, inviting um, this man, invites him to a feast. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Luke 14. And so I presume then that, um, that because the apostles made the central to what they were doing, and biblically in terms of Jesus' life, that he, he lived this out as an example to us, the apostles were eager to bless the poor, Jesus made his ministry about blessing the poor, I therefore assume that it's a crucial commitment for us as Christians in the modern day age to do the same. If we love Jesus, we love each other, and we love the poor. And it's not just the Christian poor. Galatians 6.10 says this, We have an opportunity. Let us do good to everyone. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And it is true, we take care of those in the church. But then, what did Jesus say in Romans uh, 12.20, or Paul? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. <laughs> If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So it's not just about people in the church. It certainly is people in the church and anyone outside of the church who is in need. And so I want to encourage you. Part of what we're trying to do with the other churches in St. Albans is to work together. And so City Church has a... Uh, um, on Wednesdays, they have a feeding, <coughs> a feeding scheme. The Vineyard has a, a thing called Feed, which they run on Mondays. The um, St. Paul's Church up the road runs uh, a debt counseling center helping to people get out of debt, and Cheryl is working together with them. We are trying to work with other churches to take care of the poor in our community. Part of our motivation to go to Cambodia is to help to take care of that chur those churches and to help the poor. It's a deep motivation that we want to see lived out. And so I want to encourage you to get involved somewhere. <laughs> I'm not telling you how. I'm just saying... Jesus is changing on the inside. Do something on the outside. Take care of someone who's less fortunate than you are, in whatever way you can. Okay, so, of course, Jesus was the, um, the perfect example of this, and this is what I wanted to say. This is what I wanted to quote just now. Um, remember, over Christmas, we've celebrated the incarnation, that God became uh, flesh in the person of Jesus. And it says that Jesus made a home with the poor. Luke 2, 2 Corinthians 8. He lived with, he ate with, he associated with the lowest classes of society. And this is when I, what I wanted to say just now. When he was challenged at this party with the Pharisees, they challenged him and said, why are you hanging out with all, all these, these people? Matthew nine thirteen. Jesus says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come for the righteous, but I came for sinners. In other words, Jesus called what he was doing, living amongst people that were poor and needed the grace of God, he called that mercy. He said that's what it looks like to have mercy on others is to associate with people that are poor and broken and lost. And as you share your life with them, that is having mercy. That's what Jesus said. I desire this, mercy, more than I desire religious sacrifice. That's what he said. Doesn't that challenge you? It certainly challenges me. How is my life showing mercy to others? And lastly... Uh, wealth within the church is to be shared generously between rich and poor, 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, and the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament 
and in the New Testament both testify that true faith shows itself through deeds of mercy to others. Remember our study of James. Remember? God shows no partiality in the church. Don't say to a rich man, oh, we like you. Come through the door, sit in the front row. We've got a special place for you. And poor man, at the back. Sit at the back. No, that's not the church. That's not the body of Christ. No partiality. Rich and poor in the church. No partiality. And basically also James tells us that materialism is sin. Loving things too much is sin. James 5, 1 Timothy 7, verse 17. And so these are all things that we have as Christian believers. These are all responsibilities that we have as Christian believers. But there's a special group of people in the local church that the Bible says are to coordinate mercy ministry, reaching out to the poor. And if you know um, the calling of uh, the the deacons in Acts chapter 6, that's exactly what the Bible says. There's a special group of people in the church called deacons who help to facilitate looking after the poor, mercy ministry. Why? We know in Acts that they were fighting about the distribution of of, um, material stuff between the Greeks and the Jews. Uh, and they were fighting in the church. So then they say, no, no, okay, well, let's, we'll appoint a group of men that are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of power. We'll call them deacons, and they will sort out all the, the practical mercy ministry, who gets what and how we take care of giving to the poor. And the others, the preachers will preach, and, the, and those men will look after the poor. Yes? And so there is a specific group of people that do that. And in fact, Paul's last words, I love Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders, He says this in Acts 20, verse 27. He reminds them that he had had taught them the whole counsel of God. And his last words in verse 35, he encourages them to give to the poor and the needy. This is what he says. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the final thing he says to the elders in the Ephesian church. And so he makes it clear that showing mercy to the poor is uh, part of the whole counsel of God and it's his last encouragement to them to take care of the poor. Three things for you. Christian unity accepts anyone from any culture, any background, any people group. Secondly, Christian unity shows that we all recognize we have different callings, we go to different people. Thirdly, Christian unity takes care of the poor. Final question. Is there a limit to Christian unity? I think that's important. Is there a limit to Christian unity? And I want to say quite clearly, like I said in my opening remarks, it's easy to make too little of Christian unity because we focus on infighting and what divides us from other believers that believe the same good news of Jesus rather than focusing on Jesus who brings us together. That's the one, the one error we can make. The other error that we can make is to make too much of Christian unity. And that's equally dangerous We can seek unity at the expense of being Christian. And we are not called to make that mistake either. Remember, the whole context of what we are looking at in Galatians 2 is that Paul has gone to Jerusalem because he doesn't want false teachers to infiltrate the church in Galatia. And the whole point of his meeting with the um, other apostles is that Paul is not willing to share a church with those that teach a different gospel. He's not willing to share the church with people that teach a different gospel. The basis of the apostles working together was shared gospel truth. 
That is the basis in which they work together. Paul received the right hand of fellowship from the other apostles. That was a sign of friendship, cooperation, approval, just as, as it is today. Well, they weren't just being mace. They weren't just shaking. They were saying, no, no, we, we, we are committing to, to, to um, work together. And that, at the same time, was a profound thing. Because as they shook hands with Paul, at the very same moment, what they were doing was they were isolating the false teachers in the churches in Galatia. And they were saying, we agree with Paul and what he's teaching, and we don't agree with you. There's a limit to how we can work together. And you see, we don't like that. <laughs> Our generation doesn't like that. Our generation likes the fact that we are friends with everybody. And I am friends with everybody. But to work with you is a different thing. Are you with me? We only have, there's a limit to our, our fellowship. The only, the only reason for our fellowship is our belief in Jesus. And that is the limit of our, of our fellowship as well. Uh, I, uh, this church will work with any church that preaches the gospel of Jesus. Absolutely. But I'm not going to work with a church that says you must follow rules to live your life. And if you don't drink like this and you don't eat this and you don't, you don't dress in a certain way, that is unacceptable and you're not saved. I will not work with someone like that because that is not the gospel. So I hope I've made some friends, but I've probably made more enemies than I've made friends right now. You see, by including Paul, Barnabas and Titus, who I said to you last week, was the living example of an uncircumcised Greek. The apostles in Jerusalem were at the same time excluding the false teachers that were teaching a different thing in Corinth. The gospel unity was being established, and uh, false teachers were being kept out of that unity at the same time. The fact that we are in Christ is our only basis that we need for friendship with each other. You see, there are two longings of the human heart, aren't there? The one is freedom and the other is community. These are two deep longings of the human heart. I find this, more and more that I lead church, people love freedom, but they don't want community. Or they love community, they love relationship, but they don't want gospel truth. It's like we want the best of both worlds. We want the freedom that Jesus brings, we want the community that Jesus brings, but don't call us into a church. I don't know. No, don't call us to, to work together with those that are different from us and who perhaps don't agree on everything. Oh, no, no, no. We don't want that. We just want freedom. And it sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Freedom in Christ. Now, the freedom that we have in Jesus is worked out with each other. People from every tribe, every people group, every nation. Why? Because that's what heaven is going to look like. <laughs> that's what heaven's going to look like. So, I want to put it to you this morning that those two longings, freedom and community, will never be fulfilled by religion or worldview that says you earn your way to salvation by doing the right things. That will always divide people. It will always divide people along two things. Cultural lines, and it will enslave them emotionally, where they'll never feel they know whether they're saved or they're not saved, and they'll be going up and down, up and down, up and down. This is what Paul fought for 2,000 years ago. Unity and freedom in the preaching of the gospel and in the defense of the gospel, that's what he fought for with the apostles. And division and slavery were the two things that Paul did not give in to. And I want to put it to you with all my heart that as we take this church forward, we never give in to those things. Division, slavery. Division, slavery. I have to be honest with you. Those are some of the things we fought for in the last 15 years. Division, slavery. 
freedom in Christ and cultural division in churches and people belonging to little groups. Never again. In Christ, we are free. In Christ, we are free. And we bring all of who we are into the freedom that we have in Jesus. And that is a glorious thing. I said I want to conclude with this. Um, We were talking with the leaders the other day. And I said, um, over the years, you develop a philosophy of ministry. And a philosophy is simply this. A a philosophy is is a, a way that you want to do life. A way that you want to do ministry is your philosophy, your ministry of life or your ministry of philosophy. And I have learned over 15 years now of leading this church that there are some things that are absolutely worth fighting for and are the only basis with which to work with other people. And that is our ministry philosophy. And our ministry philosophy is not just because we think they are good ideas. These are things that we will live and die for. I will live and die for. The first is forgiveness. We are called to forgive each other. The second is unity. (laughs) The third is servant-heartedness. The fourth is courageous faith. The fifth is generosity in every way. Why have we landed on those things? Because we think they're good ideas? No, because through the pain of our lives, through the success of our lives, we have landed on those things and we are convinced that those are gospel things and those are the only way to build a community where people forgive each other, unified, love each other, serve each other, generous in every way, passionately taking great risks for God, courageous faith. This is the only way to live as a Christian. These are not rules. This is the gospel inside of us, transforming us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. So, two questions as we finish. And then, uh, Quibus, we're going to excuse the visitors and uh, those that are members, we ask you to stay for five minutes just as we talk about the finances. But two questions for you to think about, for you to consider as we go forward this year. First, how are you personally caring for the poor? And I don't say that to accuse you. I just say that to encourage you. How are you personally caring for the poor? Has Galatians 2.10 encouraged or challenged you? The last verse, where Paul says the Apostle said to him, just remember the poor, and he said, it's the very thing I was eager to do. How, how, how are you caring for the poor in your own life? And secondly, as part of this church, and personally, do you think in your life you under-adapt the gospel, or do you think in your life you over-adapt the gospel? Just asking you to think about it. Do you think that uh, there are some things that you compromise on because you're trying to win people, and then you lose the truth of the gospel? Or are there some things that you are too tight on and you're losing people because you're not prepared to negotiate those things? Are you with me? No, we're called to live a radical way of freedom. Word, spirit. Grace, truth. Family, freedom. Community, freedom. Radical middle. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your words. I want to thank you for the good thing that you've called us into as a church. Thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in Jesus. Thank you for our amazing community of people that are being transformed by the goodness and the kindness of God. And Lord, we just pray that as we go forward this year, I thank you, Lord, you're going to add many. Just for you to know, as a a part of my personal prayer this year, is that God would add 50 new families to us this year. 50 new families. Why? So that we can say we have a big church? No, but because we want to see people saved. 
want to see people radically changed. We want to see marriages restored. We want to see, uh, we want to see people set free from debt. We want to see people healed. We want to see people delivered. Fifty new families. Will you pray with me? Will you pray with us? Fifty new families added in this church over this year. It's not impossible. It's one family a week. That's all. Jesus, we, we bring that to you. That's a desire of, of our hearts, Father. We, we, we simply want to say, Lord, we want this church to grow so that this community can be transformed and changed, so that many can be saved through everyone just living their life in front of you. As we just do our jobs and as we, as we minister to children that we teach or whatever we do, we want to see people saved, Lord. We want to see people come into your kingdom. Help us this year by the power of your Spirit. Lord, you desire it more than we do. But Lord, uh, we trust for your grace. Trust for that freedom to be on the inside of us that we can live free. And uh, Lord, I pray that this increasingly will become a family that embraces everybody. That we would have absolute freedom in this church and at the same time we would enjoy absolute, wonderful community. Both of those things. That's the deep longing of our heart, Father. And Lord, this is only possible by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we seek you this year and honor you and say in all things, have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.